Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you are listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome to episode four, The Seattle Murders, part two. It gets worse because Ted Bundy is a massive pile of crap. Trigger warnings, all of them, body mutilation, sexual assault. So have a kitten nearby, have a nice smoothie, whatever you need to get through it. It's a wild ride from start to finish. Let's get into it. Roberta Kathleen Parks, known as Kathy to her friends, was a beautiful 20-year-old with blonde waist-length hair parted down the middle. She was a student at Oregon State University and unfortunately was unhappy with the personal and academic aspects of her life. On the morning of May 6, 1974, her sister called her with the horrible news that their dad had a heart attack. The good news was that he was in good hands and there was no need for Kathy to return home. However, being a sensitive person by nature, Kathy worried nonetheless. Later that evening, his condition thankfully stabilized. Her father's heart attack, unfortunately, wasn't the only thing weighing on Kathy's mind. Kathy was also worried about her relationship with her boyfriend, a scuba diving instructor from Louisiana. They were in a serious relationship that Kathy thought was moving too fast. Even though they had previously lived together for six months, Kathy wasn't ready to fully commit and settle down as quickly as him. She believed she needed more time to find herself and achieve her goals. In fact, on the day she disappeared, Kathy mailed her partner a letter in which she expressed her concern about her dad's heart attack and then added, I'm feeling down right now due to a combination of things, I suppose. To tell you the truth, I don't even feel like finishing this letter. I think I'll go walk around outside for a while. Well, I'm looking very much forward to seeing you. When you come, please put your arms around me and make me feel everything's okay. I'm needing the comfort of your presence right now. I love you, Kathy. Kathy's friend Joanne said, Kathy took frequent walks in the evening from her room to get refreshments. This was usually between 9.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. Another friend, Sarah, whose father was an FBI agent stationed in Portland, Oregon, apparently had an open-ended invitation from Kathy to join her on these late-night walks, but she always declined. Kathy and her roommate Miriam shared a room at Oregon State University. On May 6th, around 10.55 p.m., they got ready to hang out with another friend. As they were leaving, Kathy told her roommate, Go ahead, I'll be over in a little while. After about 15 minutes, Kathy's roommate returned to their room, but Kathy was gone. A little after 11 p.m., another friend saw Kathy walking alone on campus and would tell the police, She appeared to be in a daze and in a dream, and she expressed her desire to just be on her own that she didn't want any obligations and didn't want to continue her relationship on a permanent basis. This friend asked Kathy to come back to her place where they could talk more about what was bothering her. However, the friend said, Kathy just felt like being alone, taking a walk, and trying to straighten things out in her own mind. Kathy also admitted to having skipped her classes that week and that she had been drinking too much. In her room after she was abducted, Investigators found a piece of paper which outlined in very vivid detail the ideas of her life and her future. And the last paragraph is quite foreboding. It says, I want to travel, experience lifestyles different from my own, live in different societies, meet different people, all ages. I want to get into gardening. I love plants and watching them grow. I want to keep myself healthy, physically, mentally, and gain more confidence in myself. I want to love the people I find it most difficult to love. 
I would like to have happiness, energy, serenity, and a strong sense of peaceful well-being well up inside me. I want to be happy with myself and completely accepting of myself. I want to love and learn through loving and living. I want to live to be a hundred years old, but I think I'll be ready for death whenever the time comes for me. (sighs) Kathy's apparent moodiness initially led police to believe that she, like Donna Mason, may have died by suicide. The day after Kathy's disappearance was spent searching the immediate areas for her body, even dragging the bottom of a nearby river. When nothing was discovered, a missing persons flyer was sent to the regional police agencies. However, since Kathy's missing persons case was outside of Seattle's jurisdiction, there was no need for the Seattle Police Department to really pay attention to it. These flyers were posted as they came in, one on top of the other. A case from 260 miles away in Oregon, a completely different state, was less likely to raise any attention. On May 6, 1974, when Kathy Parks disappeared 260 miles away from Seattle in Oregon, Ted Bundy filled up his Volkswagen's gas tank, cashed two checks for a total of $20, which was more than enough money at the time to cover the cost of a 500-mile round trip from Seattle to Oregon and then back. And during this period, his gas credit card slips revealed that he did an extraordinary amount of driving, way more, way more than one would expect from a broke law student who was supposed to be busy with his nose in the books. So... Okay, so this is horrible. Uh, What I'm about to read from you, it's an excerpt from The Only Living Witness, uh, The True Story of Serial Killer Ted Bundy, written by Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth. And this is just like in the previous episode, Ted Bundy does this thing where he confesses in the third person because he needs to distance himself from it because he's a fucking coward piece of shit. And they ask him about Kathy Parks and her disappearance. And Ted Bundy goes on to, you know, speculate as to what the individual who who kidnapped her, what they may have done with really vivid detail, you know, because it's only a guess piece of shit. Ted Bundy came into the interview room stoned. I took the opportunity to bring up Kathy Parks, who was taken 260 miles from Oregon to Taylor Mountain. Why Oregon State, I began. Why did he go to Corvallis? Ted seemed in an expansive mood. He obviously felt like talking. It would be an attempt to commit a crime without it being linked to the other crimes, he said. Ted's head had begun to lull. His attention strayed to the windows and around the room and then back to me. Keeping him concentrated was like helping a drunk find his car keys. How different, Ted, would his approach be from the earlier killings? The M.O., he slurred, is somewhat more sophisticated than the one employed in the Healy case. He may have approached her and asked if she'd like to go up to Taylor Mountain. Bundy laughed. How about that? He laughed again. Just a friendly little get-together up there. So the reason why Ted Bundy is laughing about this is because Taylor Mountain eventually was uh, a mass gravesite for all of his victims. So he's saying that he walked up to one of his victims and said, hey, would you like to go up to the mountain? (laughs) The author writes... I wasn't amused. (laughs) Would she be walking across campus or would she be sitting in a bar maybe? He frowned. She could have been sitting in a library studying. She could have been sitting in a cafeteria studying. She was supposed to be depressed and lonely or something. She might seek out company just to take her mind off the problem or loneliness. Let's say she was having a snack in the cafeteria and he 
just sat down next to her and began talking and representing himself to be a student there and suggested that they go out somewhere to get a bite to eat or get a drink. Either he was convincing enough or she was depressed enough to accept his invitation. Of course, once she got in his car, then he had her in a position where he wanted her and could then assume control over her. A jog down to the local tavern in Corvallis would probably be the furthest he would expect her to accept as a plausible kind of trip. Will he be patient enough to go to a tavern? It's unlikely. He wouldn't want to be exposed to a situation where he would be seen in her presence, certainly no more than necessary. What would transpire once they're in the car? He would not want to confront her in the car in an area where a struggle could be witnessed by anyone just casually strolling down the street or something. This guy pulls up in a cornfield somewhere, you know, fairly abruptly. And this girl, let's say that as he travels further and further away from a populated area, she's probably becoming uncomfortable. But she still wants to believe in the face validity of the situation her would-be abductor had created for her. And of course, by the time he pulled up and stopped, there would be virtually nothing she could do about it. In that instance, virtually all that would be necessary would be for the person to get out of the car, ask her to get out of the car, and if a struggle had ensued, he would easily overpower her. In recognizing the disadvantage of the situation, she would submit to whatever instructions he gave her, out of fear and out of whatever. At that point, he would have to tell her something, to be quiet, to do what she was told, etc. Would he typically want the victim to remove her own garments, or would he prefer to do it himself? I don't know. Let's say that as a result of his voyeuristic activities, he had frequently watched women undress. Let's say he had a preference to watch the victims undress. Oh, God. Ted called the next step the sexual encounter. Fucking piece of shit. He did not describe it, but he went on to speculate that Kathy Parks had been driven alive to Seattle from Oregon. That's a 260-mile drive. I asked if the reason for taking her back alive had to do with the same indecision he had discussed in the Linda Ann Healy case. We're not looking at reasons, Ted said testily. The question you asked was was she alive or was she dead when she was taken from Oregon to Washington? The reason why this girl would have been transported that amount of distance while she was still alive is another question entirely. It certainly could have been a result of that indecision or conflict within the individual, between that part of himself that thought it was necessary to kill his victims, versus the part of him that found it to be extremely reprehensible, disgusting. Then this bitch actually says, even in comparison to murder, the act of rape is somewhat less severe. Would you take the precaution of rendering her unconscious? Again, he ignored my use of the word you. There certainly wouldn't necessarily be the need for it. We still have to remember that the individual, at least not on a conscious level, has no desire or implements no design with the goal of terrorizing or torturing the person. And he ordinarily would not want to inflict any unnecessary violence or pain on the girl, so it wasn't necessary to render her unconscious. He would have had only to tie her up. So this fucking stupid piece of shit bitch-ass motherfucking bitch literally just said, that he wouldn't want to inflict any unnecessary violence or pain on a girl that he literally just abducted and raped and kidnapped again and is driving in the back of the car. Like, oh my God, like how, how, how? Oh my God, I hate him so fucking much. I'm happy I'm doing this podcast, but I can't wait for this season to be over. I'm sick of this stupid bitch. Anyway, 
The author continues, what would you say would go through his mind on the drive to Seattle? You've got this young woman who's been sexually assaulted, who's tied up in the back of this person's car. If he's going to make a five-hour drive back to the Seattle area, he's going to be nervous. He's going to be thinking about what he's going to do. Five hours. Five fucking hours. This poor woman was tied up in the back of his car, conscious. Five hours. I, like, what the fuck? What the actual ever-living, perfectly untouched fuck is wrong with this piece of shit? Like, Jesus fucking Christ. <sighs> How long would it take him to resolve that? In a way, he'd probably view the driving time as a luxury, giving him time to think and would not really make the final decision until he was back in the Seattle area. I mean, really forced with facing the fact, you're here now, what are you going to do? So he's having this luxurious drive while he's clearing his mind, while this poor fucking woman is in the back of the fucking car, still conscious. Like, it wasn't a luxury for her, you stupid bitch. I, ooh, this bitch. Fucking potato peel his shins. Needles between his toenails, paper cuts between his fingers, like all the things. Fuck him. <laughs> like, oh my God. Would there be a second assault on her before she was killed? Well, given the amount of time that they would have been together, it's likely. Would he need to start drinking again? He may. He could. But the barrier had been bridged, as it were. And the girl was in his possession. And it was something he had to deal with, drunk or sober. We have to realize that he also had his normal obligations to school, to friends, and family and work and whatnot. If he had to be at work the next day, he could hardly leave the girl in his house the whole day without concern that something might happen where she would be discovered. What more do you think can be said about her arrival on the Taylor Mountain crime scene? Hmm... Ted had earlier suggested that Linda Healy was killed on Taylor Mountain. Now, he's indicating that Kathy Parks had died there too. If so, the site wasn't just a dump as police believed, but a murder scene as well. Ted seemed to be slipping away again. I restated my question and he mumbled, whatever it is with reference to, to, uh, what's her name? I think it's Parks, I said. Parks, terrible with names. And faces. Can't remember faces. Uh, you asked me something about going to Taylor Mountain? I asked you what happened from their arrival in King County until she ended up on Taylor Mountain. Ted was suddenly very serious. You asked me to speculate, he said with menace. Didn't I say speculate? All right, I asked you to speculate. Then he laughed. I've gone through this for hours with other people, pardon me, but I'll be very meticulous about the wording here. You asked me to describe what happened. I can't tell you what happened. All I can do is just assist you with my educated guesses. Which bitch, what are you educated about? Serial killing? Who? <laughs> All right, about Taylor Mountain, you did speculate there probably would be another sexual assault or or at the time she was killed. <sighs> Give it another lick, Ted said merrily. Remember as you're reading this, he's dead and people set off fireworks while it was happening. Just keep that in your mind. You know what I mean? Like, there was justice for these women. Like, thankfully, there was justice. He was laughing again. Poor Miss, uh, what's her name? Parks? I hope no one ever listens to this. They might think I was approaching a serious situation in a frivolous mood. That's not entirely true. Ted pulled himself together. Well, let's just track through it. He's probably tired and very upset and nervous. He's tired and very upset and nervous. Bitch, 
Kathy Parks isn't tied up in the back of your fucking car and you're talking about how you're tired. Like this fucking piece of actual human dumpster fire. (laughs) He continues. Probably the only thing at this point he wants to do is resolve the situation he finds himself in and get some rest or do something so that before going home or taking her anywhere else, he just drove directly up to Taylor Mountain site without much ado. Oh yeah, he interrupted himself. There's a lot of conjecture about why all these remains were found in one location. Now, one of the theories advanced is that the only reason the skulls were found is because the victims had been decapitated. Mm-hmm, says the author. I think we've discussed that a person that knows even a little bit about law enforcement knows that, in many instances, badly decomposed bodies are identified based on detention. We'd have to conclude that the bones were found in the condition they were found because of the animals. This might give us one clue as to why this person returned to that site on at least several occasions. Perhaps it was discovered that when a body was left there and later the individual would return to check out the situation, he would find it was no longer there and concluded that the animals in the area were doing, you know, his work for him, as it were, and would continue to go back there simply because it was his own garbage disposal. A whole bunch of the little beasties would, in effect, destroy every last shred of the victim. Mm-hmm, says the author, who knows full well that this bitch was going back to the mountain to fuck these decapitated bodies, and that he decapitated them so he could fuck their heads, not because he wanted to avoid them being identified by their dental records. I swear to God, I'm gonna have an aneurysm. Ted Bundy finally concludes, with that in mind, we can say that Parks was taken directly to the vicinity where the other bodies were found, and at that point, he killed her. Either in the car, or he marched her off the road and killed her in a more secluded location. The author writes, I bought a quart of scotch that night and tried to eat a cheeseburger. Somewhere near dawn, I fell asleep or passed out. In May 1974, Ted Bundy got a job at the Washington State Department of Emergency Services, also known as DES. Its duties included coordinating local disaster relief efforts and rescue teams. One of its functions was to help in the search for Linda Healy, Donna Mason, and Susan Rancourt. Thankfully, Ted Bundy actually was not part of that uh, aspect of the DES, but I mean, I'm sure he looked into it. I'm sure he was nosy and was being a fucking looky-loo and popping his head in and being like, oh, how's the progress going, guys? Like, Anyway, Ted Bundy's arrival at this office apparently caused a bit of a stir among the women who worked there, who, for some reason that I still cannot fathom, thought he was attractive. Again, I point you to the unibrow. Anyway, one man who worked there, whose name is Larry, I almost said Larry David, (laughs) not like you imagined, whose name is Larry Diamond, although, wait, sorry, Larry David did help in exonerating a man who was, I think, convicted of killing his wife or some shit because he was at a baseball game. And if you look, he's in the B-roll when Larry David was filming his like HBO show and whatever. Anyway, go check that out. It's a cool like true crime case. Anyway, one man, Larry Diamond, remembered Ted cut a handsome figure that summer. Frankly, he said, Ted represented what it was that all young males anywhere ever wanted to be. He held that image. I wanted that image. And because of that, I was jealous of him. I think half the people in the office were jealous of him. The males and all of the women were all taken by him, down to the crease in his trousers. <laughs> okay, Larry. But there wasn't any flaw in him. It was that he was almost too perfect. He could have damn near any woman he wanted. Ugh. 
Most men talk of women in the sense of fantasy. He didn't. It was almost like he compartmentalized them. Ted was almost one-dimensional if I think about it. It's like there's a very beautiful storefront that's attractive and lures you in, but then you get inside and its merchandise is just sparse to say the least. A more fateful encounter for Ted Bundy that summer working at the DES was with Carol Ann Boone, who for those of you who are not like Ted Bundy buffs, uh, this woman would be his future wife. Yes, his future wife. Just look up Ted Bundy, Carol Ann Boone. Um, Ted Bundy gets married while on trial for murdering a 12-year-old girl. People are fucking crazy and need mental health help. This bitch married a serial killer. No one full well. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. During this summer, he met his future wife. So author Stephen Mashaw describes Carol Boone as, <laughs> he describes her as, a lusty, tempered, free spirit regarded generally as the most competent staff member at the DES. She was remembered by other employees as a sister-slash-mother figure who did her work well, but who also was not above starting a rubber band fight or leading a circle of her closest co-workers on three-hour liquid lunches in the voodoo room. <laughs> okay, leading her co-workers leading her co-workers on three-hour liquid <laughs> liquid lunches in the voodoo room at the nearby Bailey Motor Inn. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like kind of a lit boss, though. Three hours went to a bar and got wasted. <laughs> Which is, you know what? You know what? This group was supposed to be in charge of the search and rescue efforts of these missing and murdered women, and they're out taking fucking three-hour booze lunches. Wild. The 70s were something else. <laughs> also, who starts a rubber band fight? Shoot me with the rubber band. I fucking dare you. Missing an arm. Missing a fucking arm. Be the last thing you do with that hand. Anyway, she was the most competent person <laughs> in the boss at the D. She was almost, anyway, he says she had the wit and intelligence to do almost anything. She wasn't that damn smart because she fucking married a serial killer, but okay. At the time Carol Ann Boone met Ted Bundy, her personal life was messy. Her favorite uncle had recently died, which is sad, but she was newly divorced from her second husband and she was trying to raise her son Jamie while being involved in a messy affair with a man that she described as being a large unpleasant man <laughs> like so why were you fucking with him why were you fucking him he's large and unpleasant. again the most competent person to work at des the place that is in charge of search and rescue efforts of these missing and murdered women moving on she says i like ted bundy immediately we hit it off well he struck me as being a rather shy person with a lot more going on under the surface than what was on the surface he certainly was more dignified and restrained than the more certifiable types around the office. He would participate in the silliness part way, but remember, he was a Republican. <laughs> According to Carol, Ted made it clear that he'd like to date her. However, their relationship did not deepen into love, only friendship. Part of the attraction was Ted's sensitivity to Carol's emotional problems. <laughs> A.K.A. He spotted a messy bitch and was like, I'm in. <laughs> like attracts like, I'm just saying. I'm talking shit about her because she fully married a serial killer. Like he was in prison 
on trial on death row. And she was like, I want that. So she can suck it. (laughs) She says, I guess I was closer to him than the other people at the agency. Liz, remember, (laughs) remember Liz? (laughs) There are so many crazy people. And like, I know it's like, you know, I'm not one to call a woman crazy, but these bitches were crazy. You suck in the dick of a necrophiliac. Sorry, ma, but you crazy. That's some, that's wild. I mean, I didn't, I don't think they knew that he was fucking dead bodies, but at the same time, you knew he was stepping out. <laughs> Am I going to Utah? Okay. Anyway, I'm going to stop shitting on Liz. Um, at least the 1974 to 81 version of Liz when she was experiencing this. 2021 Liz is wonderful, presumably. Um, But this version of Liz, messy. So she says, When Ted went to work for the State Department of Emergency Services in Olympia, our time together shrunk further. Olympia is a two-hour drive from Seattle. Some nights, he stayed with a friend in Olympia. Some nights, with his parents in Tacoma. Some nights, at his place in Seattle. We talked on the phone every day, and he still came to my place a couple of times a week. Usually, we go out to eat, and then he would go back to his place to sleep. When I go back to my place, I'd lie awake and think. I was hurt that he hardly ever wanted to make love. There had to be someone else. I wish I knew what she was like so I could be more like her. Oh, Liz. No, you don't. No, you don't. Also, in Liz's book, she freely admits that she was struggling with substance abuse. She was battling alcoholism and it was just increasing as she was dating Ted Bundy. And she would often like black out. And I'm wondering if he ever like had sex with her while she was blacked out because he liked the idea of fucking an unconscious dead person. Sorry, but has anyone else wondered that? Let me know. DM me. Email me. Unlike the other woman victimized by Ted Bundy, the next woman, Brenda Ball, was not a student. She lived what police called an unstructured life. Open to adventure, she was largely free of inhibitions. Brenda could take care of herself. At 22 years old, Brenda is also the oldest known person victimized by Ted Bundy. She spent much of her time the evening of May 31st, 1974 at the Flame Tavern in Burien, Washington. The Flame Tavern? (laughs) The Flame Tavern was described as being a tough, seedy place set up on cinder blocks and known for its rough crowd and parking lot fistfights. Noise complaints were routine. Every month or so, the police would receive a missing persons report listing the Flame Tavern as the last known place the person was seen. I'm sorry, why is there a place where every month or so, someone goes missing? Questions. Questions. Police. Maybe, like, do your job and be like, huh, this place seems to make a lot of people go missing and has fucking parking lot fist fights and is set up on cinder blocks. Maybe we should look into it. I don't know. What else are you doing your job for? Anyway, I can't. I can't with the fucking police. Around 2 a.m. on June 1st, closing time, Brenda Ball said goodbye to her fellow patrons and walked out of the Flame Tavern looking for a ride. She had talked earlier of hitchhiking to a state park to meet some friends for the weekend. Although certain things have been confirmed by those who were present that night at the bar, reports actually vary as to how Brenda left the bar. So it's been firmly established that she did ask her friend that night for a ride, but was turned down because he wasn't going her direction. (sighs) 
I hope that person doesn't feel too much guilt about it. But like, it's 2 a.m. Like, go in that direction. Just help your friend. I don't know. Like, come on. She's a fucking woman at night at 2 a.m. Like, go in that direction. (sighs) Another report has Brenda leaving with an individual, presumably having secured a ride from this person, although no one thought to pay attention to who he was, what he looked like, or what type of car he drove. Another report has her leaving the tavern alone and immediately hitchhiking. It wasn't until 16 days later, on June 17th, that the police department was notified by her mother that Brenda was missing. 16 days later. Check in with your friends, guys. Just check in with your friends. They're like, hey, I haven't heard from that person in a while. Just check in. It's 2021. We have technology. Shoot them a text, an email, a DM. Just check in with your friends, please. On the night Brenda Ball disappeared, Ted Bundy spent the early portion of the evening with Liz Kendall, her daughter, and her parents who were in town. That evening, they went out for pizza and returned to Liz's place around 10 p.m. It was around this time, Liz said, that Ted seemed anxious to leave. He mysteriously missed her daughter's baptism the following morning, and years later, during a telephone conversation with Liz, after he was arrested in Florida, Ted confessed to her of his involvement in the Brenda Ball disappearance. Liz said, My mom was the one who remembered that they had been in Seattle at the time one of the young women disappeared. Friday night, May 31st, 1974, Ted had taken us all out for pizza, and when we got back to my house at 10 p.m., He was anxious to leave. He was supposed to meet us at my church the next day because my dad was baptizing Molly, but he didn't show up until the ceremony was over, about 3 p.m., two hours late. (sighs) Okay, so now this is Ted Bundy's account of what happened to Brenda Ball, as explained to the authors of The Only Living Witness while Ted Bundy is in jail. The Ball case I offered to Bundy didn't seem at all like the ones that came before it. He was interested in burying his M.O., Ted quickly replied, in such a way as not to fan the flames of the community outrage or the intensity of the police investigation. This is why the ball girl found herself to be the next victim. What do you think might have happened that night, I asked. Ted repeated that he could only speculate, but he guessed that he picked her up hitchhiking and they got to talking and she had nothing to do. He would ask her if she wanted to go to a party at his place and take her home. At this point, he would exert an influence on her, which would be especially effective if she was under the influence of alcohol. He'd take her home, I asked. Sure. I pictured Ted and Brenda at the Rogers rooming house. Did he persuade her to go up the ladder to his room? It would seem terribly risky. If you live with someone, Ted mused, but he had his own house. I see. What is going on in his mind on his way to his place? Conversation, Ted said. To remove himself from the personal aspects of the encounter, the interchange. Chattering and flattering and entertaining as if seen through a motion picture screen. He would be engaging in the pattern just for the purpose of making the whole encounter seem legit. And to keep her at ease. He didn't want this girl to get second thoughts about going with him to his place. And also... He was afraid if he started thinking about what he was going to do, he'd either become more nervous or lose his concentration or in some way betray himself. So there's a very delicate balance between being cool and the excitement? Well, Ted observed, it's a critical balance, not a delicate balance. It became almost like an acting role, 
It wasn't difficult. The more an actor acts in a role, the better he becomes at it. The more he's apt to feel comfortable in it, to be able to do things spontaneously and get better, as it were, in his role. Okay, so they go to his place, I asked. He'd have to explain why there isn't any activity going on. It was probably not the first time she run into that kind of situation. Maybe it was. In any event, she was somewhat wary of the situation and yet bored enough or intoxicated enough or both just to not really consider it threatening to her. They drink until she was exceptionally intoxicated. A dramatic departure from the Healy situation, no? In part, it is because of design, but in part, it is just because of circumstances. I asked if the longer the two spoke, the more apt she was to emerge as a person and thereby lose her symbolic value. Well, drinking has an effect on both parties, he explained. On the one hand, the more intoxicated he became, the more repressed his normal codes of behavior. And the more she drank, the more she would lend herself to stereotypes. The fuck kind of stereotypes, stupid bitch. (sighs) How would he proceed, I asked. I wasn't prepared for the response. And I just wrote in the margins, shit, am I? (sighs) The initial sexual encounter would more or less be a voluntary one, but one which did not wholly gratify the full spectrum of desires that he had intended. And so, after the first sexual encounter, gradually, his sexual desires build back up and joins, as it were, these other, unfulfilled desires. This other need to totally possess her. After she passed out, as she lay there somewhat in a state between coma and sleep, he strangled her to death. And the author says, The question I should have asked Ted at that point was if Brenda Ball was strangled, why was her skull discovered with an enormous crack in it? Instead, I swallowed hard and forced what I hoped was an even tone in my voice. It seems to me, I said, that there'd be some kind of logistical problem in getting her out of there? Oh, not at all. There wouldn't be any urgency, he answered, since she was in a place that was private. Ultimately, he'd have to bundle her up in some fashion and take her out to his car when it's late at some time. Some time. Not that night. Some time. And the author writes, I thought with a shudder of the Utah girls that were murdered. Melissa Smith in her perfect makeup and Laura Amy with her freshly washed hair. How long had Ted played with them? Ted did not say how long Brenda Ball was kept in his apartment. What would he do with her, I asked. Just leave her in the bed, Ted said. Put her in the closet. You know, I mean, no one's coming in. Oh. (laughs) Can you imagine being this author, sitting across from this fucking psycho? Like, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth for dealing with this psycho for fucking years to get us this record because could not have been me. Holy shit. Okay. Georgian Hawkins was pretty, popular, 18 years old with brown eyes and long brown hair, parted in the middle. Her friends called her George and recalled that she had an infectious, beaming smile. In high school, Georgianne Hawkins was a cheerleader and in her senior year won a popularity cum cum 
hope it's not come, cum beauty contest and was voted her school's daffodil princess, an annual honor bestowed upon one girl from each of the Tacoma area high schools. She was almost exactly the same height and weight as Susan Rancourt. The night of June 11th, 1974, Georgian went to an end of semester party where witnesses said she drank no more than three beers. Sorry, not sorry. Who gives a shit how many beers she drank? Doesn't mean she should be victimized. Anyway, Georgian hadn't worn her contacts that night, nor did she bring her glasses. And she didn't bring her keys to her apartment. By a prior arrangement, she was going to wake up her roommate by throwing pebbles against the window of her room, which, I mean, sure, girl, like just bring your bring your keys. After midnight, Georgian walked partway home from the party with a girlfriend then stopped for about a half an hour to talk with her boyfriend Marvin at his fraternity house. Once they were finished talking, she said goodnight, and she left by the fraternity house's side door that deposited her into a brightly lit alley. When she stepped into the alleyway, she heard her name being called and looked up and saw her friend Dwayne hanging out of the window of the frat house. (laughs) She stopped to chat with him for a few minutes before she said it was getting late and that she had a Spanish test the next day. With a wave and an adios, she turned right and continued walking down the alley toward her sorority house. From that window, Dwayne could watch Georgian walk down the alleyway. Given the angle of his vision, Dwayne could see her until she was just within perhaps a few seconds of her doorway. And in those few seconds, Georgian Hawkins was abducted by Ted Bundy. As they spoke, Dwayne said they could hear someone in the alley laughing, and Georgian would occasionally glance in that direction. Later, it would be established that her abductor, Ted Bundy, watched while she spoke to her friend in the window. So it's very likely that this laughter came from him. So this crazy bitch was just in the alley laughing. Like, what the fuck? What the, like, what the actual ever-living fuck? Oh my god, okay. At the same hour, a witness later recalled a tall man wearing what appeared to be a leg cast, stumbling along on crutches, was seen in that same area. He had a briefcase, which he kept fumbling and dropping. Descriptions of the man, later given to police, were very similar to the reports that came in later of the stranger with his armload of books and and boxes and packages who approached Jane Curtis and Kathleen in front of the library right before he abducted Susan Elaine Rancourt. Steve Burnham, a member of Phi Kappa Sigma, a fraternity who gives a shit, a frat bro, uh, noticed an injured man around 12.30 a.m. about the same time Georgianne was saying goodnight to her boyfriend. According to this witness, the man was dropping his briefcase as he crossed the street. The witness also noticed the man was wearing a leg cast and would tell investigators that he had a slit up his pants up the left leg. He had a wrapping or a bandage or a cast maybe on his left leg and just the toe stuck out and it appeared to be all the way up to his knee. The witness was about to help this injured man. However, he saw a young woman offering help. This woman, whose identity is unknown to this day, carried the briefcase through the intersection, handed it back to the man, and walked away. As Georgian Hawkins walked down this alleyway, although it was brightly lit, she wasn't wearing her glasses, nor was she wearing her contacts. The alleyway was lined with fraternity and sorority houses, whose windows were open. At least two groups of people saw Georgian walking along in the middle of the alley where the streetlights shone the brightest. One witness, a fraternity house mother, reported that she heard a high-pitched, terrified scream that night, but no one else reported hearing or seeing anything. Okay, I'm sorry. Here's the thing. If you hear someone scream, just look out your window, just check, 
open your window and say, hey, are you doing okay? Once when I lived in the village, I will never forget, it was Wednesday at 11 o'clock at night and I heard this crazy high-pitched scream and I was like, oh shit, a woman in distress, I need to help. So I looked out the window and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like looked at the time, you know, checked so I could call the police and I didn't see anything. So I was like, okay. So I listened, I heard the scream again. I was like, oh my God. So I opened the window, I lean out and I see a group of people walking down the street and they're laughing. And then this person screams again. So then I <laughs> I say, if you're not dying, shut the fuck up. Because I'm sorry, if you're not dying, don't just be wandering around at night screaming. Like that's a sign of distress. You're not a child. So if, if you hear something, try to check, try to help people. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. Stop screaming. People are trying to sleep. It was Wednesday. That's not a turn up night. I'm sorry. It's not. Go to bed. Get a job. Get responsibilities. Stop screaming. Any fucking way. Georgianne Hawkins' sleeping roommate did not hear any sounds at all from the darkened area below the window where Georgianne was supposed to stop and throw pebbles. Somewhere in the last 30 to 40 feet between her and her door to her sorority house, she was abducted. Crazy. Crazy. The next morning, Captain Herb Swindler, <laughs> Captain Herb Swindler, he sounds like a fucking sea captain. <laughs> like, call me Ishmael. <laughs> But Captain Herb Swindler had his first day as the new head of Seattle's police homicide squad. Welcome to the squad, bro. We got a fucking serial killer on the loose. Although serial killer did not, the term didn't exist at the time. <laughs> also, Stephen Michaud is kind of shady. He describes him as a balding, archetypally gruff cop <laughs> with 30 years experience. He was no stranger to multiple homicides. He had worked on as many as 18 different murder cases at one time, which Let's hope he had a fucking good therapist. Captain Swindler looked over the initial report on Georgian and shook his head in disbelief. Although he was assigned to a different division throughout the preceding months, Herb Swindler had taken a professional interest in several of the missing girls around the region. He himself had a college-aged daughter and was concerned at the rate of missing college co-eds. He hadn't seen a pattern exactly, but he noticed a negative link. The one factor that was consistent throughout each case, that there was no evidence. Captain Swindler asked his sergeant for the homicide unit's files on the other missing girls, including Linda Ann Healy, who was already a Seattle PD case. To his and my surprise, there were no other files. Apparently, Herb Swindler, who just got on the case in June when Ted Bundy had been killing women since January, was the only officer in the entire Seattle Police Department who wondered if there was a connection among Linda Ann Healy, Donna Mason, Susan Rancourt, Kathy Parks, Brenda Ball, and now Georgian Hawkins. I'm sorry, if you're not gonna do your jobs, why the fuck are you there? Like, college girls are going missing at the rate of one a month, and no one's like, hmm suspicious these fucking dumb fucks are probably like oh they probably ran off to be with the guy because they're girls like fuck off get a different job (sighs) okay so the day after her abduction georgian's roommate laura told their house mother that georgian did not return home at first the house mother's reports to the seattle police department stirred no response which yeah because these bitches didn't make a connection in the first place they're probably fapping it into a donut like why are you here this is literally your job do it so anyway thank fuckfully georgian's roommate her dad norm heffron don't know him but he's a news executive and he made certain that a report on georgian's disappearance was on the station's evening newscast which come on that's like thank you the story was 
guess what, guys? Another co-ed had vanished because people in the town are starting to talk about it. They're like, hey, what the fuck is going on, Seattle PD? Excuse me, we notice, you don't. Only after this news report, because of this connection of Georgianne being the roommate of someone who had a high-powered white man, you know, essentially with power, then came the heavy police response. Oh, oh, whoop, a more important white man told us we got to do our jobs. I guess it's time to start doing our jobs. Like, fucking Keystone-ass cops. I'm... It's been a hard week for black people in America, so I'm I'm on one today, and I fully deserve to be on one. I'm fucking sick of this shit. Do your fucking jobs or leave the force. What the fuck are you there for? God. And I am not sorry. If you don't like it, turn this shit off and unsubscribe. I don't give a fuck. I truly don't give a fuck. I said what I motherfucking said. Deal with it. Anyway, so detectives swarm the scene. They get there. Whoa, it's like a whole show. They swarm the scene, and among them, the newly appointed Captain Herb Swindler... He's there and they start walking the same route that Georgianne did and they're traipsing through a crime scene. Essentially, they're just walking through the alley. You know, it's a it's a crime scene, but they're like, let's let's look around. Burr, burr, burr. Anyway, and so while they're there, they notice that there are some open parking areas near where she may have disappeared. Captain Swindler told news reporters, whoever took her, she must have gone willingly for some reason. I'll bet anything that it's tied with those others. I know damn well it is. And we've got another loser. Nobody. Nothing. You know, my own daughter is a student here. So guess what? Wee-oo, wee-oo, wee-oo. Ted Bundy's back on his fuckboy shit. Surprise, surprise to no one. Oh, Ted Bundy used to date Captain Herb Swindler's daughter, the head of the homicide unit of the Seattle PD. Ted Bundy used to date his daughter, a fucking course. Back in 1968, he dated her. And they went on some like super weird date where he invited her back to his apartment to play chess because he's like, I'm so important. Oh, look at me, I can play chess, whatever. And... <laughs> And he was wearing like all white and like just some straight some fucking funny game shit. Like, have you seen that movie Funny Games? It's super creepy. It's super weird, but it's super awesome. But yeah, they used to date and it wasn't anything serious. They never got physical. Uh, he taught her about um bagels with cream cheese and locks. And she was like, what's a bagel? She literally didn't know what a bagel was. And I was like, ma'am, I know bagels are very East Coast, but ma'am, <laughs> ma'am, it's a bagel. Anyway. The day that her dad was examining the crime scene of Georgian Hawkins, Kathy Swindler was on campus and suddenly, among the passing young faces, she noticed Ted Bundy. He was riding his bicycle along the street, moving slowly through the traffics of other bikes and pedestrians. They saw each other and Kathy wanted to wave and shout hello to this man that she once dated, but for some reason, she didn't. It was a no contact, really, she reflected later. We both looked at each other and we saw each other, but we didn't say anything to each other. I often wonder why I didn't say anything. Ted looked great, she remembered, impeccable. On his 10 speed, he appeared on his way to a tennis match, probably from his apartment near the edge of campus. His tennis racket was tucked into his backpack. Ted Bundy was dressed almost the exact same way that Kathy remembered him on their date in his apartment six years ago. The same way. He was wearing a white t-shirt, White shorts, white socks, white shoes. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Oh my God, I just had a thought. Do you think that he liked wearing white so that he could be excited about the blood that got on his clothes? Do you, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Okay. On page one of the Seattle Times, the June 12th edition, so the following day after she disappeared, under a photograph of Nixon, <laughs> was the little known information of Georgian Hawkins. It said, University of Washington co-ed, 18, disappears on way to sorority. 
police seeking information today about an 18-year-old co-ed who disappeared early yesterday in the university district. Georgianne Hawkins of Lakewood near Tacoma was last seen after she left her friend's residence to return to the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority shortly after 1 a.m. yesterday. The friend said she left via an alley. She told him she was going back to the sorority to study for a final examination. Several acquaintances reported seeing and speaking with her as she walked back toward the sorority, but she never arrived and friends became concerned at about 3 a.m. When she failed to show up for her final examination, friends began telephoning friends and family and relatives. According to the sorority supervisor, she said, Georgianne is an absolute stable and dependable girl. It would not be like her to leave without telling her roommate or her friends where she was going. Toward the bottom of the article, came the first tentative public suggestion that a serial killer was on the loose. It said, Police said they were looking for any possible links between the disappearance of Ms. Hawkins and the January 31st disappearance of Linda Ann Healy, 21, also a UW co-ed. And now we get into Ted Bundy's account of what happened to George Ann Hawkins. And this was told to Dr. Robert Keppel, who is the head of the Seattle Ted Bundy murder cases. So he says... I was in the alleyway behind the sorority and fraternity houses. I was moving up the alley using a briefcase and some crutches, and the young woman walked down. About halfway down the block, I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase, which she did, and we walked back up the alley, turned right on the sidewalk, past the fraternity house, and continued on. There was a parking lot, dirt surface, no lights, and my car was parked there. Basically, when we reached the car, what happened was, I knocked her unconscious with a crowbar that I placed outside behind the car. She didn't see it. And then there were some handcuffs there, along with the crowbar. And I handcuffed her and put her in the passenger side of the car and drove away. Dr. Keppel writes, He was not the phantom prince that crime writers and reporters have portrayed him to be for 10 years, but a creep, a spineless chicken shit killer. Yes, Dr. fucking Keppel. That's what I'm talking about. And I think that little dig of he was not the phantom prince was a dig at Liz, his ex-girlfriend, because her book is literally called The Phantom Prince. I mean, come on. And his book came out after her book. And he says so many times in his book, not The Phantom Prince. Like, yes, go off. Go off, Dr. Keppel. Ted Bundy continues, she was not dead. No, she was unconscious, but she was very much alive. I mean, she regained consciousness at this time. I took her out of the car and I took the handcuffs off. One of the things that makes this a little bit difficult is that at this point, she was quite lucid, talking about things. It's not funny, but it's odd the kind of things people will say under those circumstances. She said that she had a Spanish test the next day, and she thought that I had taken her to help tutor her for her Spanish test. It's kind of an odd thing to say. Anyway, the long and short of it is that I again knocked her unconscious, strangled her, and drug her about 10 yards into the small group of trees that were there. Ted Bundy admits to Dr. Keppel that he strangled her with an old rope that he kept in his car as part of his kill kit, which is terrifying. He then skips over a large frame of time as to what he did with her body between 1 a.m. and dawn and continues by saying, Then I packed up the car. By this time, it was almost dawn. The sun was coming up. On this particular morning, I went through a frequent routine where I was just absolutely shocked, kind of scared to death and horrified. I drove east on I-90, at some point just throwing articles out the window as I went. Articles of clothing, the shoes, etc. I threw away the briefcase and the crutches, all that stuff. And the crowbar, everything. The handcuffs, everything. I was in a sheer state of panic. Just absolute horror, you know? At that point in time, the consciousness of what has really happened is like, 
you break out of a fever or something. I'd get mad at myself a few weeks later because I'd have to go out and buy another pair. I mean, it's not comical, but that's what would happen. He was smiling. Also, sorry, but did no one notice this legit psycho throwing fucking crutches out of his window? Crutches? Just think about how long a crutch is, okay? Throwing it out of a window, two of them, and then a briefcase, and then clothes and rope. I'm sorry, where are the questions? Granted, this is before cell phones, but like, what the fuck? What in the ever-living actual fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck? Write down the license plate. Go to the police station. They probably won't do anything because these fucking Keystone cops are just as useless today as imagine how useless they were in fucking 1974, except for not like homies like Herb Swindler and Kathy McChesney and, you know, the people who caught the serial killer, but the average like beat cops who were like, maybe she got a nosebleed. You know what I mean? Like the fuck. So Dr. Keppel notices that Ted mentions he started throwing clothes out of the window and he asked him, well, when did you remove her clothes? Ted declines to answer the question and instead says, I skipped over some stuff there and, and I'll have to get back to it sometime, but it's it's just too hard for me to talk about it right now. He's talking about the necrophilia. He's referring to the necrophilia. Without the benefit of any notes, Ted described the clothing that George Ann Hawkins was last seen wearing perfectly. Ted says, a pair of white patent leather clogs, blue slacks, and some kind of halter top, which he had tied in a knot. Ted Bundy further confirms his involvement in the abduction and murder of Georgian Hawkins by revealing to Dr. Keppel, she said everybody called her George. Or how about that she used a safety pin to pin her blue slacks because apparently they were a bit too big? Dr. Keppel, the man who was investigating these murders as well, knew for a fact that Ted Bundy was telling the truth. This was an absolute confirmation and this was a detail that had never been released to the public. Ted Bundy said, I couldn't find one of the shoes, so I went back the next day on my bicycle and rode back to that little parking lot at about five o'clock in the afternoon, and I found both of her pierced earrings and the shoe lying in the parking lot, so I surreptitiously gathered them and rode off. So this bitch went back to an active crime scene that at this point was crawling around with cops because this is when the Captain Herb Swindler, his daughter, saw him riding on the bike. He went back to the crime scene and gathered evidence, gathered evidence during an active crime scene. Like you literally can't make this shit up. He went back to the crime scene. They always go back to the scene of the crime. This bitch returned to an active crime scene, swarming with cops, gathered evidence and just rode away on his bike. Like, oh my God. During this interview, Ted Bundy confesses to Dr. Keppel that... He cut off Georgian Hawkins' head, brought it back home with him, and stored it with the three other heads of his previous victims. He would return to their headless bodies and have sex with them. At work, Carol Ann Boone noticed that from early June onward, Ted's health seemed to deteriorate. During three weeks in August, according to her, he lost 15 pounds. She attributed his poor health to the complex DES budget, which he had to finish before leaving for Utah in September. It hadn't helped that a cleaning woman had thrown out a cardboard box filled with Ted's budget files. He was just so stressed. She also noticed 
that Ted was receiving a number of hostile phone calls from Liz while he was at work. Carol tried not to eavesdrop on them, just as Ted would politely walk away when she fought on the phone with her lover, again, at work. But Carol could see that these calls from Liz made Ted nervous and cranky. During this time, Liz said, Like most women living in the university district, I was deeply disturbed by these disappearances. Walking at night from my garage to my front door scared me. But the abductions of these missing co-eds was not the only thing weighing on Liz's mind. Liz and Ted had reached yet another crisis. <laughs> another crisis. According uh, to Liz, she was waiting for some firm commitment from Ted before he left from Utah. She was worried that his move to Utah would mean the death of their already extremely messy relationship. Once Ted established himself in a new town and met new people, specifically women, let's be real, she felt their relationship was doomed. The previous autumn, Liz discovered a bag of women's clothing, primarily underwear, in his apartment, which he stole when he was being a fucking peeping Tom slash breaking into people's homes. Like, scary. Other times, she noticed a container of plaster of Paris that Ted had taken from his time at Pedline, that medical supply company that he used to work for. She also noticed in his apartment a pair of crutches, but the bitch never actually used them. Like she just saw a pair of crutches and wasn't like, hey, what are those for? Liz had been too embarrassed to say anything. In the spring of 1974, she also noticed a progressive ebb in his desire to have sex with her. And this is because, again, he was fucking dead bodies and decapitated heads. Just going to say it again. So failing to find a local police officer willing to speculate, reporters interviewed police officers in other cities. You folks have a problem, said a Denver detective after a reporter summarized several of the cases to him. I've never run into anything like that, said a sergeant from Phoenix. Sounds to me like you're dealing with a real nut. (laughs) That's that's one way. That's one way to put it. Captain Herb Swindler, the only Seattle PD officer who believes that the cases were linked, said, I've got a feeling that some predatory bastard sitting out there licking his chops, reading all those stories about the missing girls and grinning at us. Oh, Herb. You were so right. Pew, 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 pew. Oh, we did it. <laughs> Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a delicious palate cleanser, which is Mimi purring. Stay tuned for next week. I will get into Lake Sammamish. For those of you who know, you know. For those of you who don't know, you're in for a wild ride. It's already been wild, but this, it, it just always gets worse because it's Ted Bundy. Please shoot me an email at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com to stay in touch and follow on Instagram at truecrimeaficionados. Your reviews have been so lovely in the iTunes store, so if you haven't already, please rate and review. It really helps. I want to see us in that number one top spot. My sources will be listed in the show notes. And yes, I will be in your feed next Friday, so stay tuned. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe and keep your head on the swivel. Bye.